Welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Pining, a duet by Gretchen Plus of Akron and Adam Reif Snyder of Cleveland. Gretchen and Adam are a featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about them and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Steve, have you ever seen someone convicted and think, hmm, maybe he wasn't guilty? Oh, well, I mean, the first thing that pops in my head is we did that story of Aura Lee and that guy they thought killed her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've done a couple stories like this. Uh, Orly, that was the Wadsworth case where they um, convicted her boyfriend. And most people who review that case say, nah, it wasn't him. Obviously, most of our mysteries involve crimes that haven't been solved. We don't know who committed it. But this one is, in some minds, a lingering mystery as to whether the crime was solved correctly. So, you know what, let's just get to the story of Charles Hart. It was a leisurely Sunday morning that November 4, 1894, and the good children had little else to do but go play. Farmer Samuel Good and his wife lived three miles northwest of Paulding in Paulding County. They had four children, 11-year-old Clara, the eldest, Wilson, an eight-year-old boy who went by the nickname Ashby, five-year-old Elsie, and a 17-day-old baby. Around 10 a.m. that morning, Ashby and Elsie went outside to see what they could get into. They lived near a wood that was always fun to explore. Ashby had made a toy gun and wanted to pretend hunting quail. A couple of hours later, Mrs. Good was surprised that the youngsters hadn't popped back into the house, so she told Clara to go have a look. Clara did, but couldn't find them. Mr. Good wasn't too worried. They probably went exploring a bit, then found a neighbor who invited them in for lunch. He told his wife to relax. He suggested they have lunch, and if the kids weren't back by then, he and Clara would go have another look. 
and after lunch, that's what they did. Samuel and his daughter spent the entire afternoon canvassing the area, asking neighbors if they had seen Ashby and Elsie. None had. By evening, Samuel was every bit as disturbed as his wife. At 8 p.m., Farmer Good fired a shot into the air, a community-wide emergency signal. And 20 men heeded the call. They set out on horseback and foot, carrying lanterns and scouring the area for more than four hours. But their lamps ran out of oil, and it was impossible to see much in the wooded areas in the black of night. Shortly after midnight, the search was suspended until morning. It was a long, dreadful night. It was November, chilly. Were the children lost? Cold? At risk of some hungry animal prowling the woods? and then it started to rain. At daylight, the searchers returned to the good farm. They divided themselves into groups and devised a plan to cover a 600-acre tract of woods. Then they would cover a smaller 160-acre wood near the goods' home. And if the children weren't in either of those places, they would begin a march through 2,000 acres of heavy timber that the locals called Northwood. They agreed if anyone found the children, they would fire a shot. An hour later, the blast of a shotgun echoed through the air. The shot was fired by Charles Hart, a slow-witted 18-year-old young man who had been searching with two other men. In the woods... About a half mile from the good home and some 400 feet from Charlie Hart's own home, they had come across the scene of a fire that had been started but then squelched by the rain. And in the wet remains of that fire, a scene that was gruesome beyond words. But the Paulding County Republican gave it a try. Here is their report word for word. Elsie was lying face downward upon the ground. Her shoes had been removed, and all save the upper portion of her trunk was nude. The fire had burned her flesh in many places, and her head had been all but severed from her body. On one side of her face was the mark of a bludgeon, the blow from which had probably caused her death. Her feet were tied at the ankles with a piece of tar-red twine, such as farmers use in binding corn fodder. And the murderer, who had first satisfied his unholy passions, had completely disemboweled her. Lying across the body of little Elsie was the charred corpse of her nine-year-old brother. The boy's hands were tied behind his back, and his trunk and lower limbs had been literally cooked by the fire that was ignited to destroy evidence of the crime, but which had failed to accomplish its purpose because of the rain. 
heaven's tears shed because of the cruel fate of two of its bright gifts to mankind. Little Wilson's temple bore the mark of a bludgeon, and his throat was cut to the bone. His body bore evidence of the same devilish butchery as that of his sister, and when found was nude save for a little clothing about his shoulders. Anyway, the coroner would later confirm that Elsie had been raped. Two hours after finding the bodies of the good children, Sheriff Ed Staley made an arrest. He took into custody Charlie Hart, the young man who had been in the search party that found them and had fired the shot announcing this. The two men in Charlie's search party, one of whom we only know as Mr. Wood, told the sheriff Charlie acted strangely when they came upon the scene. They said that as they approached the charred heap and recognized the human remains, Charlie made no move to join them. Instead, from a distance, he turned, went to his home, which was just 400 feet away, found his father's gun, and discharged it to signal the bodies had been found. They found this all suspicious, and word of their suspicions moved throughout the town like wildfire. It was probably just as well that Sheriff took Charlie into custody because within two hours, some 500 people had gathered at the crime scene to view it. News reports explained this gawking as the proper way to signify willingness to assist in meeting out swift and terrible punishment to the guilty ones. By the time the sheriff had made his arrest, Charlie's home had already been surrounded by a mob raging and bent on revenge. News reports described Charlie as tall, thin, raw-boned, and a fair sample of a backwoodsman. As Sheriff Staley interrogated him, Charlie insisted he didn't kill the children. He fidgeted nervously and answered questions about himself. He'd never been to school, didn't know how to read or write, didn't even know his own age. Charlie was described by some as, at the very least, ignorant, and at the very worst, insane. There was one thing working in Charlie's favor. When he was brought in for questioning, there wasn't a drop of blood on him. But the vague circumstantial suspicions piled up. For instance, after Charlie discharged his father's gun to alert the search party, he mounted a mule and rode over to the Cincinnati-Jackson and Mackinac Railroad track and talked to the searchers there. He described the scene with the mutilated bodies, but the sheriff wanted to know how he knew what the bodies looked like because the searchers who were with him said he refused to come near enough to see. And it didn't help Charlie's case that he admitted he was home Sunday. Then he should have heard the cries of the children, people said. But I wasn't alone, Charlie said. He told the sheriff he had been hanging out with Levi Kane, a 21-year-old black man who lived with a family named Jackson and was a frequent companion of Charlie's. And so the sheriff had Levi Kane brought in. 
and for good measure, the sheriff also arrested Clarence Brindle, Charlie's brother-in-law. News reports didn't clarify why Clarence was arrested, only referred to Levi and Clarence as accomplices. But the same news reports did take the time to note that Clarence had married Charlie's younger sister, Nora, when she was only 13 years old. Perhaps their way of suggesting he was a man for a preference for young females. There was one other possibility. The sheriff did hear reports of two tramps seen in the neighborhood Sunday morning when the good children disappeared. And Sheriff Staley sent out deputies in all directions to try and find some trace of them. But they were long gone. That same afternoon, on the street outside the Paulding County Jail, hundreds of men from Paulding and neighboring communities assembled with plans to lynch Charlie and Levi. A local judge and other leading citizens took turns giving speeches to the growing mob, trying hard to hold them off. The sheriff even came out and argued there was a good chance Charlie was innocent and that the guilty party was still at large. Out of an abundance of caution, the sheriff waited for the cover of dark, then quietly slipped his prisoners out of the jail and to Van Wert, some 30 miles away, for safekeeping. When the mob somehow devised or suspected this, a group estimated to number 400 started for Van Wert, many by horseback. A Van Wert newspaper reported that the mob coming from Paulding was in such numbers that it cannot be resisted by authorities. And Company D, 2nd Regiment of the Ohio National Guard, was asked to be ready to assist. They weren't needed. The huge mob never materialized, apparently having changed their collective mind. All of this was making national news. Each chapter of the story picked up by newspapers from Los Angeles to New York. And the locals wanted to see it all in person. After the children were found, they were taken to Thompson Undertakers, where hundreds were allowed to view them. The Paulding Democrats said it was a sight that made strong men grow weak and women to weep. The reports also said Mrs. Good had been kept in ignorance of the details of her children's fate and that Farmer Good had been prevented from viewing the bodies. Charlie continued to insist on his innocence. A news article said his denials of guilt were emphatic and his conduct not greatly different from any person charged with so heinous a crime. Then, on November 10, four days after the murder, a fourth arrest was made. David Merritt, a 40-year-old black itinerant Methodist minister from Defiance, he had been staying with Charlie's sister and brother-in-law. Sheriff Staley said he had hauled him in more as a witness than anything else. For nearly two weeks, the public continued to express not only rage, but fear that such a thing could happen in their community. The Paulding County Republican tried to calm them. We think we are safe in repeating what we said last week, that the people of this community are law-abiding, that they are satisfied the officers will bring the guilty parties to justice if possible, and that the county has already been sufficiently disgraced by this outrageous affair. Hey, fellow true crime aficionados. 
I've stumbled upon the ultimate hidden gem, Dakota Spotlight by James Wollner. It's a revelation. Picture this, thoroughly researched, original, and peppered with real interviews. No sensationalism here, just gripping storytelling with heart. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll always want more. So cozy up and join me on the edge of your seat. Trust me, this podcast is the real deal. Start with the Mandan murders and prepare to be hooked. Let's uncover this treasure together. Listen to Dakota Spotlight. Meanwhile, the investigation continued. A bloodhound was brought into Paulding by train and taken to the crime scene. According to some reports, the dog made a beeline from the wet brush fire to Charlie Hart's house. But since Charlie was in both places anyway, it was unclear what that meant. Given the state of the community, Sheriff Staley and Paulding County Prosecutor F.W. Corbett decided against offering a reward. Instead, they called the Abbott Mintz Detective Agency of Cleveland for help in investigating. As the questioning of Charlie continued over days, his story started to change. He tried implicating Levi Kane and Brindle, his brother-in-law. Then he changed his story and named the minister Merritt as the perpetrator. He often asked to speak to his father, His requests were always denied, and before long, his father wasn't even around to visit him if he could. An attempt had been made to dynamite the Hart home. And so in mid-November, Charlie's family fled Paulding and the state of Ohio. November 22 was to be the preliminary hearing of Charlie Hart, Levi Kane, Charles Brindle, and David Merritt. In a statement the day before, Sheriff Staley said, Never for a moment from the day of the murder until now have I thought anything else but that we had the guilty party in custody, and I believe so yet. Indeed, I can say that I positively know it. True, I may be mistaken, but if I am, the world is square and the moon is made of green cheese. It may take some time to get our evidence in shape, but when the time comes, we will have it as orderly as the alphabet, and no guesswork at that. I have no compunction of conscience and have no hesitancy in saying that Charles Hart murdered Elsie and Ashby Good, and that Brindle knows all about how and where he did it. And so on November 22... The prisoners were escorted to the Paulding County Courthouse for a hearing to bind them over for trial. The night before, they had been secretly transferred from Van Wert to the Paulding County Jail. And of course, the morning of the hearing, the mob was back. The Paulding Democrats said, The streets were quite filled with people, so much so that the passageway to the jail was lined with a throng on either side. All four prisoners stood before Justice Henry E. Spring and pled not guilty. Then witnesses were called. A neighbor talked about how Hart told him the children were cut to pieces without having been near enough to see the remains. Merritt implicated Brindle by sharing a conversation the two men had at the Van Wert jail. 
Merritt said Brindle had told him he'd taken a drug that had him barking like a dog, and that he then confessed the crime. Merritt testified that Brindle said, The thing is all up with us now. We and Hart will both be hanged. After the hearing, Justice Spring released Levi Kane and David Merritt and sent Charles Hart and Clarence Brindle to jail without bail. The two men were initially taken back to Van Wert, but with whispers of the mob always ready to strike, authorities made other plans. Staley secretly transported the two men back to Paulding, where they were met at the train station by the sheriff of Williams County, who took custody of the men and whisked them off to the jail in the county seat of Bryan. Now, the Abbott Mintz Detective Agency in Cleveland that was hired to investigate this matter put into place a new plan. At the jail in Bryan, they had two men, private detectives Klein and Hart, pose as prisoners with the intent to schmooze Charlie. The two men said they were able to elicit confessions from him. And with their encouragement, on November 26, Charlie under the belief that if he confessed, he would be given a shorter sentence and finally be allowed to see his father, confessed to Sheriff Staley that he and he alone killed the good children. Charlie said he came across the children that Sunday morning, that they were hunting for hickory nuts in the woods, and they invited Charlie to search with them. But Charlie had other ideas. He raped the little girl. Then... Realizing he would be in trouble when Ashby ran from the scene screaming, captured Ashby. He hit them both with a bow gun he was carrying and tied them with twine. Then he went home, retrieved a butcher's knife, and attempted to cut them up. Then he thought to burn them, thinking it would conceal all the evidence. He had no explanation for why he managed to do all of this without getting any blood on his clothes. Staley and the prosecutor were satisfied. Brindle was released, and a trial date for Charlie was set after a change of venue was granted. And on December 20, 1984, Charlie's trial took place in a Defiance County courtroom before a packed gallery. Charlie was represented by attorneys John Snook and A.N. Wilcox. Judge Wilson Snook presided. Judge Snook asked Charlie to stand. The indictment charging him with murder was read. The judge told Charlie that the penalty in first-degree murder was death and asked, knowing this to be the case, how do you plead? Charlie stood and in a firm, clear voice said, guilty. A handful of witnesses were called by the prosecutor for the penalty phase of the trial to help the judge determine the degree of the crime. They included the coroner to describe the condition of the bodies, the sheriff to describe his interrogation, and the children's father, Samuel Good. The prosecutor also produced a club with which he said the children were killed, 
It was the butt of a roughly hewn crossbow gun owned by Charlie. The defense offered no fight, but asked for mercy. Charlie's attorneys noted that he was so ignorant he didn't even know the name of the state he lived in, and that he had grown up with vice and ignorance. When all was said and done, Judge Snook handed down his decision. The sentence of this court is that you be taken to the penitentiary of the state, and there, under the authority of the law, be hanged by the neck until you are dead. Charlie was taken from the courthouse and immediately transferred to Columbus. The execution was set for Friday, April 12, 1895. Ohio law required at least 100 days between conviction and execution. And so on April 12, five months after the good children were murdered, Charles Hart prepared to be hanged in the Ohio State Penitentiary. He was baptized in the Methodist faith before his execution. Chaplain Wingett, who had done the baptism, stood at his side on the scaffold, saying a lengthy prayer as Hart muttered softly, O Lord, help me, repeatedly. There had been no appeal, but Charlie's last statement proclaimed innocence. I am not guilty of this charge, he said, as he stood on the gallows but I hope the Lord will be with me. Then he looked at one of the guards and said goodbye. He watched as they bound his body with cords. Then a cap was placed over his head. At 12.09 p.m., Charlie Hart was dropped through the scaffold. Reports said he died without a struggle and hung for 13 minutes before being declared dead. No one claimed his body. His father having relocated to Poe, Indiana, had gone to see him in prison once, but hadn't been back. Charlie's body was donated to medical science. After Charlie was dead, some news reports said he had spoken to the prison chaplain before his execution and implicated others in the crime, but that the chaplain said he was not free to share Charlie's last words. In closing, I want to credit some of the details in this story to Jan Nice, who has extensively researched this case and written about it, also to a website called Paulding Progress and the Van Wert Independent. And finally, a big thank you to Ohio Mysteries listener Travis for bringing this case to our attention. So, Steve, Charlie Hart, guilty or not? Uh... I tend to lean that he's not guilty. I don't see any really hard evidence. Obviously suspicious. You know, there is him finding the bodies that way, what, what the other people said. But I also think he was kind of a convenient, you know, hey, this guy did it. You know, out of the four guys that were arrested, if I had to pick one, I kind of lean toward Charlie's brother-in-law. It seems to me like everything that happened with those kids was so involved and so complex that from what I've read about Charlie, I doubt that he could have carried that all off on his own. And part of me wonders if his brother-in-law had something to do with that. And Charlie was just trying to hold it together and not blame anybody. But you're right. I mean, he was a convenient suspect and they obviously didn't have any real evidence they they produced butt of a bow gun and said okay here's the 
evidence, but I didn't see anything in the newspaper saying that it had blood on it or anything right. like that. So I don't, I don't know. I think there was definitely a rush to judgment there. I think uh, you, you put yourself back in during that time. This must have been a huge story, something like an Amy Mahalovic, because there was the mob of people showing up all the time. Oh, yeah. I, you know what? Imagine that story today. I mean, you don't hear that kind of stuff happening to kids today. You hear about kids being abused and then killed, but disemboweled, decapitated, um, burned. I mean, there was just so much done to these two kids. I mean, it's it was shocking then. It'd be just as shocking now. The yeah. poor, good, oh my gosh, the mom and dad and that 11-year-old sister of theirs. I can't even imagine. Right. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Gretchen Plus is a Cincinnati native currently settled in Akron. Gretchen likes to do thought-provoking songwriting, something fans of Joni Mitchell or Nick Drake might really appreciate. And she's often inspired by her lower middle-class upbringing along the Ohio River and Rust Belt. You can learn more about Gretchen on her website, GretchenPlus.com, and you can follow her on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And last spring, Gretchen teamed up with Adam Reif Snyder for what she described as a calming duet called Pining. Adam is a singer-songwriter, engineer, and producer living in Cleveland. He's been part of the band's Walk the Moon and Honey Bucket, and sometimes he releases music under the name Astronomer. But he also loves to collaborate across many genres, which is what led him to the duet with Gretchen. Well, let's have another listen to Pining by Gretchen Plus and Adam Reif Snyder. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.